Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we are out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and on many much-appreciated community stations around the country. And my name is David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter. And Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour will not be joining us this week because Stefan has two long interviews that he's recorded. I mean, they're very normal-length interviews. There's just two of them. There's two of them. And uh, the first one is with Mr. Tim Nash, the sustainable economist. A professional green investing consultant. What? I'm, I'm, That's what he does. It's what he does. What does he do? That's what he does. What does he do? Just, there's a lot of legality He's around. an economist. That sector is very regulated. Who regulates it? Doug I'm, Ford? No. It's a kangaroo regulation court. Investing is perhaps the most effectively and heavily regulated industry in the he world. He helps people invest He's known as the sustainable economist. I mean, he, he, at this point, he's, he's, he doesn't even use that branding anymore. He's, he's not branding. How can he not brand? No, he, he's, he's the founder of Good Investing. Good Investing. And what do they do? They provide one-on-one coaching to support DIY investors with a positive impact. Put your money where your heart is. Tim Nash. And he has a new podcast. That's true. And that's what you're talking about, or what? We're talk- we talk about the new podcast that he's got, uh, which is with the Toronto Star. And then we talk a little bit about what he sort of is seeing in the investment world right now, and a bit about Mark Carney's banking fund. Mark like, Carney attempting to get banks to commit to pulling out of fossil fuels. What's the actual thing to say? Oh, who cares what it's actually called? It's called many different things to many different people. It is an enigma. And uh, okay. Tim Nash will be providing his economic expertise on this issue. What? No? What are you talking about? Has everything about Tim Nash changed since last time he was on this show? No. It's like, he's a completely different person now. So what on earth, how shall we introduce Tim Nash? Okay. I, do, do you want me to introduce Tim Nash? Well, he's obviously morphed into an alien being since he was last on the show. That so. is not the case. Lovely man. Friend of the show. Um, I'm talking to Tim Nash, the founder of Good Investing, about his new podcast with the Toronto Star, Mark Carney's Net Zero Alliance with his, with the banks, and then also with his sort of general feeling about what he's excited about and how he sort of sees the world as it stands right now. Because he's an economist. Because he is an economist. What is his new podcast about? Uh, the economy. The yeah. economy. Exactly. So he must have economic expertise. Yeah, he has economic Which he expertise. is therefore lending his opinion on the Mark Carney thing, when Mark Carney's trying to get banks to commit to net zero, whatever yes. that means. Yeah, Probably un- unabated net zero by 3,700. <laughs> he's equally skeptical, <laughs> as a heads up. Only inefficient, only efficient net zero by 4,793. His podcast is called Responsible Investing for a Sustainable Economy. And then Stefan is going to interview Kevin Matthew Wong and two actors. I mean, no, you can't introduce him that way either. Because Stephen, the a- well, because Miriam co-wrote the thing. So you can't say Kevin Matthew Wong and two actors. You told really me it was actors before we started actors. recording. Well, one of them is an actor, but she also co-wrote the piece. Kevin Matthew Wong. Miriam Fernandez and Stola Alsvard. They, they work in theater. They are all a part of Why Not Theater. They're part of Why Not Theater. They write, they direct, they act. They're a triple threat. What are you discussing with them? A new film they have coming out today. A film? Yes. Oh. It was originally a play, but COVID happened. Okay. Uh, it's a film uh, with David Suzuki and Tara Cullis about their love and their life and what it would mean to love the earth like we do each other in our families. Oh, good God. It's a good wow. film. Wow. You've seen it? Yeah. 
So before we get into those two uh, interview, excellent interviews. They're both very good. I'll just say that uh, the Wet'suwet'en allies and land defenders, the over 30 of them that were thrown in jail by the RCMP last week, are now out of jail, and they have court dates on February 14th. And the RCMP burned down the cabins at Coyote Camp after making the arrests, which is a long-standing colonial tactic and a lot of demonstrations happening around the country still. And I'll just also note that the Gitsan hereditary chiefs in BC have decided now to evict the NDP MLA, Nathan Cullen. So this is a the member of Legislative Assembly, Nathan Cullen, from their territory, because that's where his office stands. And they write, the NDP has failed to uphold good relations with our peoples, and due to the violence inflicted on Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan members, the NDP is no longer welcome on our territories. Someone needs to be accountable for the violent actions inflicted on our peoples and territories by the RCMP and Coastal Gaslink. We do not believe these are simple renegade police actions following the rulings of a mere pro- provincial court. We know that the feds and the province are guilty of trying to exterminate our way of life. And um, Stefan was going to mention uh, something in Ontario now. For those of you who are in uh, Toronto... The next couple of weeks are actually super important in terms of getting Toronto's climate plan Transform Toronto to be as strong as possible. The report from staff has just come out and is going to committee, actually went to committee yesterday. And so there are deputations available. You can make deputations and talk to your councillors about strengthening this plan. Civil society is coming together around a few key asks, and these key asks include going beyond targets and accelerating our actions now while creating a plan to actually measure the outcomes. Also includes committing to a Toronto carbon budget to create financial tools to pay for climate action. We want to see a speed up of action on creating green buildings. We want to see a speed up in a shift uh, in transportation, especially expanding transit funding for 2022. And what really this all comes down to is We need a creative and bold strategy. You know, it is time for our governments to lead the development of programs just like they have in other times of crisis, like in the pandemic or at war. And the two other things to know about this, A, is if you want to get involved, check out the Toronto Environmental Alliance. They have information about how you can depute. Talk to your counselor if you can. But the third thing I want to point out is that all of this plan is only about Toronto's emissions within the city borders which means that a lot of the success that it's claiming we've made has to do with a coal phase-out and other things, which is going in the opposite direction as in the near future as more gas plants come online. And so for all of the good news that might be in this report and all the good actions we can do here, it will be largely for moot unless we can continue to push the provincial government to actually continue to phase-out carbon from its electricity uh, electricity. So that has to happen for this to really be effective. This is the City Council of Toronto. Mm-hmm. 25 people are now yep. debating a package of climate policies. This is the suggestions that are coming out of the, uh, out of the staff to the council, and council gets to decide if they want to implement those, if, they, if they're going to implement those, if they're going to ask the staff to do more things, or what they're going to sort of do with this report. On how Toronto can what? Be net zero? Net zero by 2040. And what you're saying is there's this, there's this list of uh, suggestions, requests, demands from climate groups yes, that are saying this is what we want to be salient in these talks. 
these discussion. are these are the things we want to see that are to see improved from what the staff are recommending. And that's what you've just listed. Exactly. What does it have to do with coal? Because there's no coal plants in Toronto. No, but Toronto is considering its scope two emissions. Mm. So it is considering well, its the electricity that it buys. Exactly. Mm. And so a lot of the emission reduction that Toronto has seen in the past has been really just because it's got we've got off coal. Mm. But that's not the city itself doing anything. And it will go the opposite direction if these new gas plants come online that's that, the, that the Doug Ford government is planning. So those reductions from not using coal is just who the city happens to be now getting electricity from. Exactly. And you're expecting that Toronto will get more of its electricity in the near future from natural gas than it currently does. Yes. Now we're going to go to some quick music and return with Stefan's interview with Mr. Tim Nash. And following that, Stefan's interview with Kevin Matthew Wong and... Miriam Fernandez and Sterla Alsvarg of Why Not Theatre. I'm from here, wisdom reminates out. From here, true wisdom emanates in all directions. We can tap into the infinite nature of our true self. We can tap into the infinite nature of true infinite consciousness. We can tap into the infinite intelligence of creation and begin to share aspects of creation that are finely tuned to the infinite intelligent nature of all existence itself. True wisdom can be birthed from this place of not knowing, of not needing to know. Because we are the very resonance that knows it all. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, you found anywhere podcasts can be found, and greenmajority.ca. We are here with Tim Nash, the founder of Good Investing and friend of the show. So great to have you here, Tim. I'm so happy to be back. It's been too long. I know. I was going to say, I think this might be one of our longest breaks without having you on, but you come bearing super exciting news for those who want to hear your voice more often, which is that you have a podcast of your own. Can you tell us about it? Where can people find it? What is it about? Yeah, I've been a busy boy. Lots of action over the last couple of years. This COVID situation has been really exciting in, for the world of socially responsible or sustainable investing. Whereas back in 2008, 2009, when that market crash happened, nobody cared about sustainability. This time around, you know, all it takes is a health crisis for people to understand that people are actually pretty critical to the economy. So uh, sustainable investing has really been taken off. And one of the great opportunities that I've gotten is that the Toronto Star approached me to host a podcast. So it's called Responsible Investing for a Sustainable Economy. The acronym is RISE, R-I-S-E. So I kind of refer to it as RISE, but if people want to search for it, they can search for Responsible Investing for a Sustainable Economy. It's a weekly podcast with the Toronto Star. We're doing weekly episodes. I think we're about four weeks in right now and an 18 episode first season. And fingers crossed that we'll get more seasons under our belt. Awesome. That's super exciting. 
to give our listeners a bit of an understanding of what they will get when they go, has there been a particular guest or conversation so far that you've really been really excited to have? Or are you, do you have someone coming up you're really excited about? I mean, I'm excited for everyone. I kind of get to curate my own uh, guest experience here. So I'm just bringing on some of the smartest people I know and experts in their field. Last week, we had a really compelling episode with Dr. Courtney Howard. She's an emergency room physician in Yellowknife and talking about climate change and the relationship between health and climate. And she talked a lot about her experiences living in rural Canada and emergency preparedness and with the wildfires that they've had, how that changed things. And we had that conversation, you know, I think it was on a Friday that we had it. And then the following Monday or Tuesday, we had these huge floods in British Columbia. So I actually had to go back and re-listen. I was just like, oh my goodness, this is so poignant given what, these communities, like for example, Abbotsford is going through right now. And I think there's a hospital there. Imagine having to evacuate a hospital, right? You're an emergency room doctor. There's probably only one or two doctors working. And all of a sudden you have to evacuate everyone. Like how the heck to actually do that? So that was a fascinating episode. The last couple have been about climate change, just because I think that is top of mind for a lot of people right now. And then this week coming out, we've got uh, Bob Willard, who's uh, the business case for sustainability. We've got, so it's really cool. It's, it's really an opportunity for me to be able to reach out to my heroes and invite them on the show. And we're trying to do a bit of a broader focus. So we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of investments. You don't have to worry about stocks and bonds. We'll probably get a little bit more personal financing in the new year, just because people tend to think about those things with RSP season in January and February. But for now, just really helping people wrap their heads around how social and environmental issues impact the economy, impact their personal investments, how they can start to think about these things. Super cool. So it's a bit of a wider range, a little more general interest, but still with sort of your your angle on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that when it comes to responsible investing, it's such a tricky term. It means so many different things for so many different people. And that really a lot of people I think are quite critical of it. That on the one side, people think it's all BS. And if you're sort of your politics are a little more right-leaning, then you tend to be dismissive of responsible investing. And on the left, people are worried about greenwashing and really worried that, that these things, well, it doesn't go far enough. And hey, isn't just capitalism unsustainable as a whole? So rather than getting lost in the weeds, you know, really wanted to take a high level, keep it accessible and approachable so that people who are exploring this topic of responsible investing for the first time can get a broad overview. What do we mean by climate risk? right? What is the business case for sustainability? Some of these very broad themes, and then really we'll, we'll see where it goes right now. It's a bit of an experiment. I feel like I'm sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm learning a huge amount. It's not easy being a host. So I find myself in your chair now and certainly learning a lot about what it takes to actually put this together and put it out to the world and just having a lot of fun with it. That's super cool. We will get you at the end to know how they can get connected to that. But to pivot to some of our more normal affair here at the Green Majority, there's a big lot of talk a couple weeks ago around Mark Carney's net zero banking pledge. And I have talked about my take on it a couple of times. We've talked a little bit about some of the interesting conversations around it and the need to do stuff. But obviously, this is your sector. And so what's your take on it? How do you feel about the net zero banking pledge? 
Yeah, I mean, it's better than nothing. Like, I'll, I guess I'll take it. You know, at least they're talking about it and they have to make a commitment here. I mean, really anything that we're talking about for the year 2050 is just seems so far away, given the immediacy of the crisis that we're facing right now, that the cynic in me really does feel like this is kicking the can down the road. We'll let somebody else deal with it. A, a future CEO is going to have this problem as well. I'm really worried about this idea of net zero that I think in the financial industry, there tends to be a reliance on these financial instruments, things like carbon offsets or credits or wh whatever kind of innovation they come up with to be able to achieve this idea of net zero. Doesn't mean that they're gonna stop financing these projects. It just means that they might get creative with their accounting to find a way to offset it. So to me, definitely more talk than substance. However, what I am excited about is something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, which is a little bit more of a, a nerdy accounting framework to be able to standardize how banks are reporting and disclosing their climate-related risks so that now at least we're starting to get the data. And although I think that the reporting and the data and the transparency is a necessary first step, I'd really love to see the conversation evolve into more strategies and outcomes rather than here's what we've done and here's the data. What are we trying to achieve? How are we making people's lives better? How are we moving the needle on specific issues? And that to me, the, this whole sort of net zero pledge feels like a crappy vision statement. Like there's nothing deliberate. There's nothing that says that, Hey, we're going to be part of the solution here. It really just feels like they're saying, Hey, we're going to stop being as much of a problem. And we're going to get creative about ways to take some of these carbon emissions off of our books and probably put them somewhere else. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that because I think for me, one of the biggest things about a lot of these net zero pledges or the ways people are talking about net zero a lot right now does still come from that do less harm phrase and not actively be part of the solution. If this was instead of a net zero pledge was we're going to move a trillion dollars into sustainable projects by 2030, doesn't get you to that quote net zero words, but in terms of real change, quite likely, you would see a much significant move. And so, yeah, I'd be interested if you could craft up a message for banks or for the industry to have in the next 10 years, what would it be? Where would you want to see people really moving? I mean, I think that the financial institutions do have a meaningful impact on people's lives. They help people save, they help people invest, they facilitate so much business. But so much of it is just sheerly profit motivated that what I would love to see them do is to become a force for financial education and really empowering people to be able to, to understand what it is that they're doing. Certainly get rid of any of the exploitive practices. We've seen a lot of issues around sales targets and how employees within their company are pushing people to get products they don't really need just in order for those employees to hit their quotas and maybe get a bonus. And that really for me, it's, it is about this idea of shifting the investments. That one of my early analogies, I talked about the river of money and how the river of money was flowing towards unsustainable companies. And so to shift that river of money 
and have it flowing towards companies that are not only having this doing less harm approach, but that are actively trying to create these positive outcomes and have this positive impact, that that to me is what's going to reshape our economy. And so really just things like having better loans on things like energy retrofits, that if I want to green my home, that I should just be able to add that to my mortgage and even have a lower interest rate so that I can make those upfront investments that are going to save me so much money over years. And if I want to put in a, a heat pump system, that costs money upfront. Banks should be providing those types of solutions. It's a great way to be able to bring people in the door and for them to do business. It's still a, a loan and they're still creating that debt and earning interest, but they're doing it in such a way where they can actually be helping people create the solutions in their lives rather than it feels right now like they're getting dragged along just to report that they're not actively destroying things. And I would really like to see them leading the way and being part of creating a more sustainable economy. Cool. So this is the question I, I think I ask you every time you come on, because it's the way I find things to be interesting often is I like finding someone who really understands the whole space and then ask them, what, are you, what makes you excited? The last time I tried this, I asked Alex Tavasoli, who is a, an engineer who was on the show, a PhD in chemical engineering and a, has done a lot of work on carbon capture, what she was really interested in. And she put me on to this CO2 rail, which if you right. haven't, is heard that one episode. of, it's remains one of the more audacious goals I've ever heard. And yet also has like, it's ever talking to someone who's doing their postdoc, you're talking to someone who has thousands of documents behind them in terms of research that they understand. So it, you know, it was substantiated while also being so audacious. And so I love those kind of things, right? They're, they're some of the most interesting chances to get a chance to talk to somebody. So from your perspective, in your field, what are you paying attention to? Uh, and is there something that's exciting or something that people should be actually more fearful of that, that you would want people to know about? Well, I mean, lots of new products coming in. So I've had my hands full. I work in the world of these ETFs, exchange traded funds. These are things that are like mutual funds, but they trade on directly on the exchange. And there have been so many new sustainable ETFs that have come out that are super cool. That keeps me really busy. But the piece that I think I'm most passionate about is this field of impact investing. And so these are going to be about more grassroots investments, things like community bonds or green bonds. You know, longtime listeners of the show would be familiar with things like SolarShare or the Center for Social Innovation that they did a community bond. And there's one right now that I really love. It's called the Fair Finance Fund. This is uh, an investment uh, opportunity where it's basically you're loaning money to social entrepreneurs that are building a sustainable food system here in Ontario. Now, I think it's open to investors across the country, but the recipients of the loans, the organizations are located here in Ontario. And it's just really cool. Like these are everything from farms and people growing the food all the way through to food trucks and the people making and serving the food and everything in between that really sustainable food ecosystem, I think it's just so critical and that I've seen so many entrepreneurs struggle in that space. So to have a source of low interest financing for them to be able to scale and grow their business, is just going to help everyone who doesn't want a, a more robust, sustainable food ecosystem. 
And then it's cool. Regular people can invest. I think the minimum investment is about 5k. You don't earn very much. You only earn about 2% a year. So, you know, it's certainly not going to make investors rich at all. That said, for people who have, who are in good shape and who are investing for retirement to carve it part of their portfolio for these sort of impact investments, that's what really gets me going. Most people have never heard of impact investments, let alone this specific fund. And so I just really love showing it to people and getting that sort of light bulb moment where they realize not only can they use this sort of do less harm approach and things like divestment from fossil fuels, which is super important, but they can carve it part of their portfolio to actually build the economy that they want to retire into and support businesses that they feel good and really want to see succeed. That's super cool. I definitely have talked to a lot of early stage organizations through my, my, my other work around the need for upfront financing to even become an organic farm because it costs so much money to become an organic farm and you can't get the certification for a couple of years. And so there's this bridge financing that can't get solved. And you know, once you hit your fully organic farm, you can then make all the same amount of money and your soil health is better and all these other benefits start kicking in. But there's a two to three year period in that middle where you can't say you're organic because it hasn't been pesticide free. And yet you aren't getting the extra premium on your products for them being organic that right. really catches people. And so something like this would be so useful to help people through that, that one step. It's a critical step though. That's it. And so to me, it's like, this is the role that financing and investing can play is that really there are so many great ideas. There are so many great businesses. Uh, they do need to be financially viable. And so to be able to provide the financing, but also supports and coaching and access to services, I really do talk about it as an ecosystem, because if we want an industry to thrive, and in this case, sustainable food companies to thrive, it really does take a whole ecosystem. And that once other people have done it, right, it becomes so much easier for new entrepreneurs to come through. The path is a little more trodden and that it becomes so much easier to, to, to get started. For sure. So pivoting yet again, because this is a wide ranging show, more to a personal note. And it's a question that I uh, have begun to ask every guest who comes on the show. It actually began, interestingly, as you mentioned, you were talking to someone right before the floods. This question began in the summer, but that moment when the BC was had just had the heat dome, there was a couple other moments that all really just made it critically obvious just how dangerous the future of climate change was going to be and how fearful that made myself. And I was seeing it across, you know, the environmentalists. It was a moment I truly was viscerally aware of just a level of despair just across anyone who cared about the environment. It was not a good time. And not like it's gotten dramatically better since, but at the, it was acute at that moment. And so I began asking people how they deal with their eco-anxiety because each person has provided me a different answer. And, and there are so many people out there who are dealing with it, especially young people, that I think that slowly collecting answers is a service that at least we can provide for folks who are working through it and to know that we're not alone. If you are listening to the show, you probably suffer from some version of eco-anxiety. And so I try to be like, maybe we get someone who gives you a suggestion that helps. That's really my sure. hope. So to you, Tim, how do you deal with eco-anxiety? Yeah. I mean, what really pops into my head is there's an old saying, I think it's from AA, Alcoholic Anonymous, where it's like, Lord, grant me the power to uh, change the things that I can control, the patience to accept the things that I can't control, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. And that to me, that's really is what keeps me going. That I think that it is a burden to be informed in this day and age, to see what's going on, to understand the ramifications of the lack of action on climate change. And frankly, right now, as we're speaking, there are people who've been arrested protesting this coastal gas link pipeline, that here we are actively enforcing this fossil fuel-based economy with our police in a very militarized way. So it's hard to be informed. I think for me, what keeps me going is staying focused on the things that I have control over. One thing early on in my career that I realized is that not everyone sees the world in the way that I do. And especially in the financial industry, very few people see the world in the way that I do. And so I have stopped really talking to those people that I don't really go on BNN anymore, or I don't try to mix it up with the traditional investment industry folks anymore, that instead it's really understanding uh, that there is a certain worldview. And for me, that worldview is that we are in a climate emergency. And if people have that worldview and they share that worldview, then I want to help them. Then I want to help them to realize that they do have control over their money and they can take actions to change their relationship with money and how they are investing for retirement. When people don't have that worldview, I just don't spend my energy on them anymore. That I just use my patience and just nod along and let it go and try to get out of that conversation as quickly as I can so that I can then go and find people who share the worldview so that I can help them. So to me, it really is uh, sort of this combination Understanding my, I use the expression, my locus of control. What is this circle of control that I have, right? And as my career develops, that circle is getting bigger and my sphere of influence is getting bigger. And so let me focus on that. And as soon as I recognize that someone or something is outside of that, then I'm not going to bury my head in the sand. I'll still acknowledge it, but I'm going to approach it much more with patience rather than this sort of force of change. And that really it is that wisdom to know the difference, to know when pushing is going to make a difference or not, that has really allowed me to prosper and thrive in, in the midst of dealing with eco-anxiety. That there's always this fear of, well, maybe I'm not doing enough, but you know, really what I realize is that as long as I'm taking actions every single day within my realm of control, really doing everything that I can, really the worst thing that can happen is that I burn myself out. So by not trying to change the things that I just really don't have control over right now, it gives me a lot more time and energy to focus on the things where I actually do have that control. So I don't want to bury my head in the sand, but I am really deliberate about muting people on social media or not watching things that I know are going to get me riled up and that being selective about where I spend my time and energy and focus. And really for me, my mission is so clear, which is to help a million people invest intentionally. And that if someone doesn't want to invest intentionally, uh, they don't need my help. There are others. It's the people who do want that, who I'm going to focus my time on. Amazing. And so if folks want to begin that journey to become one of those million yeah. people, let's we say, how can folks keep up with your work, uh, both maybe through good investing and also the, your new podcast? 
Yeah, I mean, the podcast really is for people who are just getting started, who want to wrap their head around it. So it's responsible investing for a sustainable economy. People can get us on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts, sort of wherever you download your podcast, you should be able to find us. That's definitely the easiest first step. From there, if people do want to take a bit more of an active approach and actually look at how they're investing their money and make some changes, then my website is goodinvesting.com. I've got a little research tab. If people want to see a list of impact investments in Canada, they can check that out. And then really what I find with most people though, is that they do need some help, that there's a reason why I became a financial planner that especially most environmentalists don't want to spend their time thinking about their money. There's myself. I've also got my colleague, Daryl Brown, who's working with clients to really help them make smart decisions to make sure that people are still saving for their retirement in a financially prudent manner, but also doing it in a way that is aligned with their values. Amazing. Thank you so much. Tim Nash, always great to have you on. Friend of the show, founder of Good Investing. Everyone, go check out that podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on our podcast found at greenmajority.ca or anywhere podcasts can be found. Welcome back to the show. I'm super excited. It's rare I get an interview with multiple people, and I'm here with three people in, I'm going to say studio, even though we're always doing these on Zoom these days. And it is for a film that comes out today, December 3rd. The film is called What You Won't Do for Love. It originated in 2019 as an intimate conversational play that is inspired by the love stories between David Suzuki and his partner, Tara Cullis, and how their shared love for the planet and each other continue to drive their climate change activism today. The stories you will hear from David and Tara are real. They have been captured in scripts to maintain the integrity of their memories and the vision of the original play. Additionally, they are used as accessible prompts for our elders and non-actors, newlyweds and artists, Miriam Fernandez and Sterla Alsvog, are written into the story to represent the importance of intergenerational storytelling and to inspire the audience to apply the lessons of David and Tara's love stories into our lives. We are so stoked to be joined by not only Miriam and Sterla, but also producer and co-director and dramaturge Kevin Matthew Wong. And I should note that also Miriam was also a co-writer and Sterla wants to know that he was the main joker on set. So these are the wonderful people we have to join. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Devin, for having us. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Um, amazing. I was blessed to be able to watch this last night and it is a fantastic, fantastic film. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Actually, let's start there. Where can people find this? How can people see this thing right now? So we would love for people to watch it right now. And uh, to do that, they would go to do, D-O-4-F-O-R, love, L -O -V -E, uh, love, L-O-V-E, dot film. And that'll bring you to a website that we've created just for this film. 
And folks can access this film from 12 a.m. Uh, Eastern time on Friday, which I assume it's already happened, all the way to uh, midnight on Sunday, the 19th of December. Yeah, so you only have those times. Yeah, Miriam? And I was just going to say, and our tickets are at a sliding accessible scale, so you can choose which level of ticket that you want to buy. So it's really accessible to, to many people, we hope. Totally. Amazing. And obviously part of the draw here is that you managed to get David Suzuki, an 85-year-old man, to agree to do this, which is impressive. Actually, let's start there. So this play that we've turned into a film is like mostly true with some fictionalization parts. So the intro is one of the pieces that's like a slightly fictionalized. So it was actually one of the co-writers and the co-director of the film, Ravi Jane, who worked with Kevin, who reached out to David originally. And so Ravi, Ravi reached, we tell the story in the film, he reached out to David saying, hey, I really want to do a play with you about the climate crisis. And David was, he, I mean, when you meet him, he's like a, like a kid, his energy, he's 85, but you would never believe it spending any time with him. And so he was so excited to try something new, to leap into a different way of, of talking and telling stories about our relationship to the planet through a different form. Because he's done a lot of work on TV. He's had films made about him before, but a play was a new thing. And I think David started, started from that point, but really what got David committed long-term to the piece was the fact that Tara joined the project. Tara, who's David's wife and partner of 50 years now, and once Tara was in, in this piece, it was clear to us that Tara is like central to this story. And so I think her being there also has brought out a completely different side of David than I ever expected to see. <laughs> now let Sterling and Kevin also talk to that. But I think like the core of those two people and their love for this project too, I don't think we could have done it if they didn't, if we all didn't have a good time together because it was really hard and they're the busiest people on the planet. I think that has been a big core of, of making this project happen over four years. Yeah, that was something that struck me is how long it took to get to be. And of course, COVID had a huge impact on that. But to follow up on that with Kevin and then Sterla, how was the experience working, you know, with is David Suzuki and, you know, lesser known, but obviously through this film should be known by everyone, Tara Cullis. Oh, it was an amazing experience. I was really struck by the amount of generosity that both of them brought to this process. There was a lot of trust that felt like a lot of pressure, but also felt like they were really committed. So they were really fully on board with it. And to, to go back to Miriam's point about this new audience for David, what was really exciting was that, you know, why not? I feel that we have a very large reverence for audience in the creation of our works. And I found the exact same thing with David uh, when David was speaking about his work of the nature of things and, and how much effort he puts in to try to make sure that messages that he's conveying are easily accessible, that they're understandable. And I think the same thing is really deeply held by Tara in that one of the lines in the play is Tara says, hey, David was talking about problems all the time and we need to give people answers, actions, and hope. And... I think that alignment that we had, it was never spoken, but I, I'm thinking about it right now, of always considering that person on the outside of this process. How can they receive something that's meaningful to them? And I think that spark really kept us engaged in this process again over that four years and through COVID cancellations, through multiple shifts of this filming process and postponements of this filming process. And, and really, I think the idea that it's for our audience was really something that held the whole process together. And I think that uh, was really energizing to feel from David and Tara. It was 
great to work with him because I didn't know who David Suzuki was before I moved to Canada and joined this process. And so I didn't really know what to expect, but it turned out they were just really great people and full of sports and just talk. I could ask a whole bunch of questions because they know a bunch of things and I got a lot bunch of answers, which was great. And then we were just having fun. It was really just a good process in that sense. Like they were good people to have around, not just because they are who they are, but also because they're really engaged, you know? Yeah. Like one minute we're like sitting uh, on the porch of their cottage, reading the script. And then the next minute we're distracted because there's a sea otter floating around. And then David is like, well, you know, the thing about the sea otters is that they came from this and this place. And it's just like <laughs> ridiculous. Like everything is a story or the knowledge that makes you feel more connected to a place. Yeah, I, I gotta say it does. One thing that definitely comes across is just how warm it feels like the entire film feels like a hug, you know, oh, like it's sure. just everyone is so nice. And it, it is just like such a pleasant time. I can totally see how that comes through. And obviously, one of the themes of the film is this idea of love. It's in the sentence, it's in the tagline of what would it be like to love the earth like they love each other. And so I'm curious if this process taught you anything you know, about love. And let's go in order of Kevin, Miriam, and Sterling. I definitely feel very privileged to be a part of this process. And I definitely learned a lot about love, both from David and Tara and also observing Miriam and Sterling. You know, I think it's really that sense of warmth is not something that we could have fabricated. And I think the incredible sense of commitment and, and work that is uh, innately a part of that concept of love for these two couples is something that I really learned from. And the central question is what if we could learn to love the planet as much as these two people, David and Tara, love one another. But it comes from the idea that if you love something, you'll work to protect it, to preserve it. And I think the sense of commitment that I feel from these two couples and, and how strong their kind of love muscles are is a really beautiful templates and models for thinking about love in, in my own life. So I would say that I, I definitely learned from these two couples a lot. That was beautiful, Kevin. I feel like the word that I keep coming back to is relationship and this idea of it. I don't remember who it was, but I, I was reading something about relationships and this idea of a relationship being this vessel that carries you from where you are to where you want to be together. And I think that theme of relationship in the piece that's rooted in love is about our love for each other, our love for future generations, hopefully, our love for the planet. I'm just wandering in my thinking right now because I still haven't digested this thought. But being out in BC was such a huge gift because we were surrounded by such immense, beautiful nature. And living in a city, it's hard to feel that you have that relationship to nature all the time. And it's easy in a way to feel love for nature when you're in a place, Cathedral Grove, which is an old growth forest. It's hard not to feel spiritually connected to something bigger because in this play film we talk about how can we learn to love nature as much as people love each other with nature and with people you if you kind of just try to subdue and control and restrict just only only want what's good for me it's not a generous relationship but allowing a relationship a loving relationship to grow to change and appreciate the change and just adapting to it, I think is something we all need to learn somehow. 
just thinking about what Sterla said and what Miriam shared, I'm, I'm thinking about how this project has really made me see that kind of love is everywhere. David says this thing that from the Big Bang, all those <laughs> particles having a draw to one another, they're evanescent tendrils of attraction. And that's love, in David's words. And it, I guess I also feel that it's like kind of reductive to, to just talk about human love. Like, I guess that the human love is just a starting point for people to develop that muscles that can hopefully extend um, to the, this conception of natural is actually in some ways a partition between humans and the planet. But we're actually, what the film hopes to get at is that we're actually deeply interconnected and that the entry point is human love, but that we can work to see love, responsibility, relationship uh, all around us. Um, yeah, that's really powerful. And definitely, I think, comes through pretty, pretty directly in the film. And so the other, I, I was going to say the other side, but I actually don't think it's the other side in that these things are so intertwined. Love and, and grief, which is where I'm heading, listeners, is you, you cannot have grief without love, I think. Mm -hmm. And one of the major themes of this play film, which is a great term, Sterlal, I'm using it now, is the associated grief or anxiety that comes with knowing what we're in for. There are multiple moments in this film where it's clear that like someone like you know David Suzuki has thought about this his entire life. He talks about fighting projects many, many years ago that are coming back today and the cyclical nature of this work. And I'm curious to, going back to your learnings from the creation of this film, what did you learn for, about anxiety and, and grief through this experience? I think the thing that I take with me is, like you say, Stefan, it's like love and grief are tied so strongly together. And I know that inside myself, feelings of grief and anxiety are paralyzing to me and feel the feeling of love moves me and can move me to action. And to me, that's what I really hold from our conversations with David and Tara, because the flip side of David is Tara in a way, because they kind of balance each other out in, in lots of different ways that, that we all find in our relationships. And as T Kevin said, the reason that they started the foundation, the David Suzuki Foundation was because Tara uh, felt that providing the science wasn't enough, that it was their responsibility to also provide answers and action and hope. And so the foundation was really built from the spirit of action. And I think it was Greta Thunberg who said, when you take action, hope is everywhere. And so to me, this process has been about finding a way to, to keep moving through the grief, absolutely not to stifle it or shut it down, but to not allow it to win for me. And listening to David and Tara's stories, I'm like, if they could fight through all of that and still keep going, who am I not to? It's so easy to give up or to go, it's too late. But I've got my whole life and they've worked their whole lives for this. So it's my turn to pick up that baton. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Kevin? Yeah, I'm thinking about this idea of hope for sure in, in its relationship to climate grief. Maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but thinking about the role of artists in the climate crisis, I think the role of artists can be to tell a more complex story. 
And maybe in a more complex story, mm-hmm. grief isn't the end point. Grief is a part of it, but it, it can also hopefully be a catalyst. And if, if love sustains through that grief, as you mentioned, that you, you won't grieve something that you don't love, but there can be something else, something beyond, some transformation. And uh, yeah, I know Stefan's mentioned to us before this interview that uh, he doesn't want to spoil the end of the film, <laughs> but the film is like conversations and poetic interludes. And all, all of the words and ideas that we've just spoken about is something that we were trying to contend with in the way that this film ends both in, in the, the final conversation pieces of this film and also the final, I'll say, poetic offering when folks see the film. And maybe one thing that, that I'll add is I, I think it's important to get in tune with your all of the different shades of our emotional inner lives can help us actually be more specific about what it is that we're feeling, express what it is that we're feeling, get support on those feelings and, and try to get at the source of those feelings of grief. And so I think it is important not to shy away from, from the grief and to, if possible, sit with it for a bit. I don't know what it taught me. What I do know is that I'm terrified these days. I'm literally, literally terrified. I find myself sometimes not paralyzed in action, but in thought as well, it's just bleak and dark. And what do I do then? Do I sit in that or do I do something? I honestly, I have no clue what to do. I have no freaking clue. This show, like seeing what they're doing, gives me at least a direction, gives me a little bit of light and darkness in the darkness for sure. And that's what I get. That's what I need to hold on to, I guess. But it's not easy. No. Yeah. I mean, I've been asking this question, the, the, the follow-up question, which is basically how do you deal with this in your personal life to every guest I've had on the show since the heat dome basically destroyed Lytton. And there was a moment in late August, I think or mid-August, when any, everyone I knew who knew about climate change was just in a bad spot. It was a litany of just fortunate things. And I started asking this question. I considered basically framing this whole show going forward about trying to give people tools to, to deal with exactly what you're referencing there, Sterla, which is what do we do with this knowledge? You know, we can spend, I've spent the last eight years of my life on this show telling people about the ways in which we are not doing so hot. And I think it's becoming up to a point where I was reading a tweet from the, one of the guys who runs Ecos, the polling firm. And he was saying that the rates of people feeling just basic general despair have skyrocketed. And of course, part of that is COVID, but that's not all COVID. That is the climate crisis. That is inequality. That is the lives we're all facing. And so I think that what you are, none of that's probably helpful either to say, except perhaps to reflect back to you that you are not alone in this quest. I think that might be the question of our time. I agree on this because also, what do I do? I can speak for myself. I'm from Norway. I studied in France. I married Miriam in Canada. My family's in Norway. The love of my life is in Canada. I want to see them all. Do I fly back and forth twice a year? Do I reduce it to every fifth year? Can I fly in the future at all? Will I have to choose between Miriam or my family? <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough. I, I don't know how, what to give away yet. Maybe Kevin and Miriam, do you, have you found anything that sort of helps move you forward when you start feeling this? It's a good question. Answer it. Need some optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll preface this with, I feel like my brain is a bit, I don't know, odd. So you know that book, The Uninhabitable Earth? I was reading it and it was like horrifying. 
and also there was something in it that suddenly became more concrete. And so I felt, felt less anxious. Like that book basically tells you horrific possibilities. And I think what I realized for me was that my anxiety was around abstract, horrific possibilities. And that's not to say that what is described in that book is palatable. It's just that those worst case scenarios became more concrete. And I said, okay, that, that actually strangely helped me was just the way that I processed that book. But I think the thing that actually day to day gives me some hope is a reminder that there's space for many different kinds of contributions. And I hope that one small thread of this film is that you, you don't have to be a David, you don't have to be a Miriam or Sterla. You know, everybody has their own individual sets of skills that they can contribute to the climate movement. Everybody, everybody has a network around them of folks that they have influence on and that they trust and hopefully they have loved ones around that can be engaged with them and support them in climate action. And so I think just the reminder that everyone can have a role to play. I guess I'll, I would just to Kevin's last point, I think for me, the process of working on this project has helped me manage this in my life. The, the process of being in a community of people who are worth, worth thinking about this. I'm using the thing that I love to do, which is theater and storytelling to, to share these stories with other people. That feels meaningful to me. And that has been for me a way to stay engaged with these thoughts and these big problems in a way that I feel that I feel, yeah, not alone. And I feel that I'm in some small way contributing to a bigger conversation. Yeah, I think those are the, I think those are probably the two most common responses. It's finding people to, knowing you're not alone, then finding the people to work with in some fashion mm -hmm. forward is you know, the two that come most freely to people's lips, I'll say. So we are running a little longer than I anticipated. Not a problem at all. But what it does mean is I'm going to give you a slightly more specific ask in the last question. The, the question is, was there one moment that will stick with you from this process? My ask is to just paint me one short moment in a few lines. Is there one moment from this that you will remember and that will stick with you? Uh, does it have to be in the film? No, no, it can be whatever. I'll say one, one thing that sticks out to me right now is the, the first day that we arrived, we filmed part of it off Vancouver Island where David and Tara have their cottage and part of it was filmed in Vancouver. And the first day that we arrived on the island with the cottage, Kevin and Sterla and I went down to like say hey to David and Tara and they were in like this kind of final week of summer with all of their grandkids and kids around. And it was such a beautiful thing to see them in that world because we've been hearing about all those folks for so long and they're part of all of these stories. They're, they're two daughters, Severin and Sarika, who are powerhouses in their own right. They're grandkids who they love so much, who are part of so many of their stories. And getting to go down to, to this little beach by their cottage and like picking oysters and, clam and digging up clams for dinner with them and their grandkids for me was like something that I'll take with me. I feel like I don't get that direct a relationship with the food that I'm eating and watching them lead their grandkids through that and like picking up all of this like stuff from inside the sea. Yeah, that's just a memory that I'll take with me. One memory that's going to stick with me is a funny one. So the garden scene is scene three in the film. And uh, the day that uh, we filmed that, it was so exciting because there was a moment that I was watching the director's monitor and I thought, I think this is going to work. And that was a really exciting moment. That's amazing you had that thought amidst all of the planes that day. 
That was, yeah, was, that was the next part of the story. I was like, is that relevant for the podcast? <laughs> People would be amazed at how smooth the scene feels when it was like the Vancouver air show or something was happening upon <laughs> us. Yeah, it was funny. I think every five minutes, mid-sentence, pause for playing. Let's save the climate. Stop for playing. Let's save the climate. Stop for playing. What about the climate? Stop for playing. <laughs> it was the first time I was ever in British Columbia and BC on the coast there. And I was stunned by the beauty and wealth of wildlife that exists there. Every morning we'd wake up and see a bald eagle or a pack of dolphins swim by waiting for the humpbacks, which apparently wasn't too rare to see you just off our window there. Uh, deer running around all over the trunk of the tree was the size of my kitchen. It was massive and so impressive. And I was reminded of the absolute impressive nature of, <laughs> of nature that we tend to forget. It was magnificent. No, yeah, the, the even the opening shot on the, the water and the, the mountain behind is just, I could just, you could like make it a screensaver and I just watched that for an hour and a half, to be honest. But again, so your last word can be letting people know once again, how to find this because they will be able to watch it immediately. As soon as they hear this, they can go in and download it and watch it for themselves. But I just want to say before that, thank you so much to Kevin Matthew Wong, the producer and co-director and dramaturge, to Miriam Fernandez, the actor and co-writer, and to Sturla Alsvag, the actor and primary comedian on set. <laughs> this was What You Won't Do for Love, which comes out right now, today, immediately. How can folks listen? How can folks view this film? Go to doforlove.film. Grab the people who you love and sit down on your couch. Pause as much as you need. Get some cozy drinks and enjoy the film.